This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. It's 420, the annual cannabis celebration is here. And while there is progress worth celebrating in New Jersey and New York and elsewhere in the country, Reefer Madness still runs wild here in Pennsylvania. Here to talk about it is Chris Goldstein, regional organizer for Normal. Chris is a writer and activist and one of the most recognized marijuana reformers in the mid-Atlantic states. In this discussion, we talk about law enforcement's steady diet of marijuana possession arrests in Pennsylvania, what the cannabis reformers need to do differently to win, and what is happening around the country. This conversation was recorded on April 8th. Well, Chris, welcome back to Speaking Freely. It's great to have you on to celebrate the annual 420 holiday. Oh, it is. And it is. We were waiting for a whole month of 420 last year, and the pandemic kind of got in the way of that in some ways. But so this year, there's going to, I think everybody's going to really feel 420 now that legalizations actually happen this year, too, around the area. So it's going to be a good one. Yes, Pennsylvania is going to be uh, bordered on two sides by states that have legalization. So we'll get into that momentarily. But I actually want to start with Pennsylvania because you have been one of the most active um, persons in the public discussion who has been actively collecting arrest data in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. You you do this almost annually. Maybe it is annually at this point. But even when the website went down, <laughs> yeah. you, still, you still found a way to get the data. Um, and I know you just released it a few weeks ago. So what are you seeing now? What what does the arrest data show us from the Uniform Crime Report? Yeah, Andy, it was it was shocking in a way because we were in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So when we were looking at 2020's marijuana arrests, I expected maybe to see a little bit of a decline. You know, people were staying home because of lockdowns. There was a lot less traffic, a lot less traffic stops. So um, I I didn't expect them to be as high. However, when we finally got the data out of the state police, there were more than 20,000 marijuana possession arrests in Pennsylvania last year. That's like 55 every day. And like every other year before, like you said, I've tracked this for more than a decade. Um, Marijuana arrests for possession are more than all other drug possession arrests combined. So we're talking about when we people say the drug war, Marijuana possession is more than half the drug war in Pennsylvania right now, um, and it was in 2020. You know, these were 20,000 interactions between law enforcement and citizens that didn't need to happen um, during COVID-19. And I have to say that we have already recognized prohibition as being essentially a health crisis in communities of color. The way it's enforced, the way police act, the outcomes that happen. Um, During COVID-19, the idea that prohibition is a public health problem really is right on the paper there with the arrests. So um, I was disappointed. Um, You know, we have passed decriminalization ordinances. Not all of them are fully implemented, like Allentown never implemented theirs. Pittsburgh barely implemented theirs. Philadelphia has really been the only city to fully implement decrim in the state. So arrests are still rising and and juxtaposed against what just happened in New York and New Jersey. Let's be clear. The first thing that both states did was put a full stop to possession arrests. There are no possession today, right now, there are no, in April, there's no possession arrests happening in New Jersey and New York, yet they're going on at 55 a day in Pennsylvania. So now now it's, it's really becoming an even greater problem. 
Well, and provide a little bit of context of what the data is exactly. So, for example, the, these are folks who, when they're arrested, the highest graded offense they've been arrested for is possession. These are not folks who are being arrested for higher level misdemeanors or felonies. These yeah, are folks absolutely. Who, yeah. yeah, Andy, and you make a good point, because I do hear this back sometimes from opposition groups. You know, they say, oh, 20,000 arrests, Chris. How do you know, you know, 10 of those people weren't also shoplifting a candy bar at the same time, you know? Um, well, which we, actually would show up in this one, though, wouldn't it? Because shoplifting a candy bar is a lower graded offense. But we're no, talking- it's not actually. It's, it's actually shoplifting would technically be graded as a higher offense. You'd be stealing from the store. Marijuana possession is actually the lowest graded misdemeanor in Pennsylvania right now. Um, you know, in most cases, shoplifting is a slightly higher grade. I, I did look this up one day um, okay. as a context. Um, but even in a greater context, let's let's make an even funnier example. Like when we talk about these 20,000 arrests and you talk about what you're talking about is in the FBI's own uh, collection data system. And that's what the Pennsylvania State Police use. What they use is what's called a hierarchy algorithm. So that when we go into the database to say how many people were arrested for marijuana possession, we're looking at people who, when they had that encounter with law enforcement, the most serious crime they were committing was having a small amount of marijuana. If they happened to be uh, prosecuted for DUI that same, in that same encounter, or if they happen to have a firearm, an illegal firearm, or commit some other crime while they had some marijuana, we would not see that in these 20,000 arrests. Those people People are just possessing marijuana. They're not DUI. They're not doing anything else. They don't have a firearm, nothing like that. So let, let's take an extreme example. Let's say I walk into a bank carrying an RPG on my shoulder and I rob the bank while I'm smoking a giant blunt of marijuana <laughs> and then I get arrested. Right. I'm not going to show up in the 20,000 possession arrest. The marijuana is going to be a, a minor crime compared to everything else that I'm facing in that moment. So yeah, these 20,000 arrests are people who are just being charged with marijuana at that encounter. And that's why it's so egregious. You know, we already know that prohibition is enforced with a racial bias in most communities. And this data also shows, you know, to be clear, when we talk about racial bias, we're talking about in the population. So about 12% of Pennsylvania's population is black. However, 40% of these arrests ease are black. That means that black people are are more likely to get arrested in Pennsylvania than white residents. That's not to say that white residents don't get arrested like a lot for weed in Pennsylvania, especially outside of the decriminalized areas. I mean, I have to say the arrests have gone up significantly mid-state, you know, uh, areas like Lehigh County um, and uh, outlying in Lancaster, Carlisle, um, up near State College. Um, you know, these are areas where we do see arrests increasing. and. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily uh, always a racial bias, um, but sometimes there's a class bias too. These are often happening in poor towns. Um, you know, we know that essentially poor communities are also over-policed um, across Pennsylvania. And being poor and having a little bit of marijuana is also makes you a target for law enforcement. Um, something also that's interesting in the data, um, and as we look at it, is that being young is also a target for law enforcement. Mm. Um, most of these arrests are people who are 18 to 35 years old. Um, I could only find like three or four people over the age of 65 who are arrested for marijuana in Pennsylvania. So old people, you're doing a great job keeping it in the closet. Um, 
but maybe police also kind of look at young people uh, for more of a target for pulling over and things like that too. But that's why, you know, decriminalization, legalization, when we talk about legalization, we talk about over 21. But when we talk about decriminalization, we're talking about essentially removing criminal penalties for all ages. Because especially after legalization, it should be crime for an 18-year-old to have a couple of grams of well, and this is the thing we've talked about repeatedly, that the, there's an urgent need to end arrest, that, that people end up in the criminal justice system because of, unne unnecessarily end up in the criminal justice system because of the policy of prohibition. Now, to add a little more context to that point, we don't know the outcomes from these cases, correct? That's true. Um, we can't see, we're just looking at um, the arrests. We're not looking uh, at how many people were ultimately prosecuted for marijuana possession as a crime. However, uh, the most common foil used by district attorneys across the state is to send people into drug treatment in lieu of the arrest. Um, that's kind of its own uh, problem right now, to be honest. Um, you know, having courts refer people into drug treatment for marijuana is cutting off our ability to assign those same beds for opiates and alcohol. And also, too, do these people belong there? They're, they're not there because of uh, some sort of cannabis dependence problem. They're there to uh, perform legal compliance to avoid any further criminal you know, prosecution by a court. So this is a, a, a deep misuse of resources at all levels. I mean, this is where it gets to be the biggest of problems. You know, these 55 people being arrested every day, if they aren't prosecuted, they're offered some sort of plea deal with prosecutors that often involves having to go to drug treatment. And uh, you and I pay for that. You know, it's, it's either paid for by tax dollars or people have to pay out of pocket for it. They actually have to use their health insurance to comply. And that creates a whole new set of records that can impact the rest of your life if you, you know, go into drug treatment for marijuana and use your insurance for it. So this is a, yeah, we, Andy, we need to stop arrests. But, you know, we've, we've seen that when politicians say that, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll stop arresting you for marijuana, but everybody has to go into drug treatment if they get caught by a cop. Right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, man, can't do that either. Come on. That's, that's goofy. Well, not to mention the fact that the, you mentioned about opiates, and there is a – we want the opiate crisis to be treated as a public health crisis, but if beds are being um, occupied by people who are forced into – a treatment program or beds or spaces, if it's an outpatient, um, then you have people who just using cannabis on a weekend for fun are ending up in these treatment programs. And it's, it's blocking space that could be taken by people who really are sick. Yeah, I mean, we've heard, you know, as you know, I know you follow this issue, too. And I have, you know, for 20 years, but as in the last 10 years, we've had an open public debate about how to deal with the opiate issue. And we hear at every level that we need more treatment, more treatment, more treatment, more treatment, more beds, more treatment, more availability, free treatment, you know, and, and that is all true. Uh, I have to say, Andy, there's a light at the end of this tunnel and that Philadelphia flipped the script on this. And I wrote a blog about this for National Normal recently. Um, you know, Larry Krasner came into the district attorney's office and we had decrim in Philly. But like everywhere else, cops could still perform an arrest if they felt like it. So we had an eliminated marijuana arrest. But when, when Craster came in, he said he would stop prosecuting even the arrests that police were still performing. But he also directed prosecutors in his office and his ADAs and also the Philadelphia courts and to their own right, judges, 
stopped assigning people into drug treatment for marijuana. And it was amazing. Guess what? Treatment admissions for marijuana in Philadelphia went down 80% mm. in two years. That's right. huge. You have to understand, Andy, when you look at the cities like Los Angeles, California, where you might not expect to see like people thrown into drug treatment by courts for marijuana, there was 3,000 people thrown into drug treatment by courts for marijuana. Mm. In New York, I mean, we're talking like tens of thousands of people in New York City uh, getting assigned into drug treatment programs for marijuana by the courts. Right. So, you know, Philadelphia flipped this script. Um, this doesn't need to be happening. You can decriminalize marijuana, you can stop this practice, and you can open up those resources. Philadelphia did it. Everybody else should too. And I gotta give I gotta give Philadelphia courts and Krasner credit for following through on that. They really did flip the script on that data. You mentioned the impacts on communities of color, uh, black people in particular. The numbers typically show three to four times. A black person is three to four times more likely to be arrested for possession. And you mentioned that it's uh, black folks make up 12% of the population of Pennsylvania while making up 40% of the possession arrests, um, which speaks to all the bigger problems in the criminal justice system. You know, the, as you know, the criminal legal system, the data always shows disproportionate impact on, on black people and, you know, folks being over-policed, et cetera, et cetera. There's some other dynamics there too, which you mentioned, which I think are interesting. So like take state college where the borough has decriminalized, but Penn state will probably still arrest people, right? Yeah. Penn state still arrests people because they could possibly lose their federal funding if they follow through on decrim. Now that is wrong because when we decriminalized in Philadelphia, you have to think about Philly. There's about 20, I believe there's 26 campus police departments just in the city. That's on top of the police department, the state police and even federal park rangers. So it's a police heavy city kind of. Yeah. But when decrim happened in Philly and I was working at, you know, I worked at Temple for a little while as an adjunct and I talked to them about this. Um, marijuana arrests from those departments and I was able to track them. Do you know how many people were arrested by, I mean, all the campus police departments combined in the last four years for marijuana possession in Philadelphia, it's a huge number. Guess. Um, less than 100. Zero. <laughs> oh, wow. And when I mean zero, I mean zero. The campus police in Philadelphia, Drexel, Penn, Thomas Jefferson University, Temple, you name it, University of the Arts, every single campus police department. I looked at them all. They didn't perform a single marijuana arrest since decrim. Wow. Yep. The temple, like say it's Temple or Drexel, they assign, they call up and assign a Philadelphia police officer to come over and issue one of the decrim tickets if they think it's necessary. Don't get me wrong here. The kid gets in trouble with the school. So if you get caught with marijuana on your college campus, you know, you're still going to face, uh, you know, uh, uh, disciplinary action from the campus for the violation. But the question is in State College, you know, do they have a right to keep arresting kids with the Penn State campus police because of federal law? Well, I would argue no. Temple and all these other schools in Philly don't. Why are they doing it in State College? This cuts to a bigger issue. If you're a registered medical marijuana patient in Pennsylvania and you're also a university professor and you go to your department and say, hey, I'm a patient and I'm going to start talking about being a patient, you could get fired. Um, you could get fired from the cafeteria at uh, college or university, which is what happened to a friend of mine at Princeton 
when he revealed he was a medical marijuana patient. And they claim the same thing. You know, they have to follow federal law. I'm not sure how many colleges and universities can continue to get away with this, Andy. Um, you know, Tufts University up in Massachusetts, when they fully legalized and they had medical marijuana, said that if you're a medical marijuana patient, you couldn't live in the dorm. Period. Flat. Yeah. End of story. Uh, you know, so this is what I'm, I would call, you know, I, I think it would be the dictionary definition of discrimination. You know, uh, it was okay to discriminate us against us because the law said it was okay for too long. Prohibition said it was okay to discriminate against any cannabis consumer or medical marijuana patient in so many ways. Right. But now that prohibition is over, discrimination is, is sort of laid bare. And any time that somebody says, well, you can't do this just because you're a patient or you happen to smoke marijuana, it's flat discrimination. And um, I think that arresting people in a town that's decriminalized, claiming federal law by a campus police department like Penn State, yeah, I think it's discrimination. And I think that the more that they keep it up, the more that they face a lawsuit later for it. It's funny with each answer, I have something else I want to ask you about. Or <laughs> you just said prohibition is over. Explain why you said that. You know, it it is in New Jersey, and I'm I'm here it, where prohibition is over. Um, you know, we're focused on creating a, a, a diverse retail market. Um, they've stopped. They've issued stop. I, we're, we police are freaking out. They're complaining. They're like, "Oh my gosh, we can't pull anybody over for smelling like weed anymore." Please. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know if the 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 police union in New Jersey issued several press releases about how concerned they were that they couldn't pull people over for the odor of marijuana. And I couldn't tell you how much it warmed my heart to read those press releases, Andy. I mean, it was. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It was delicious. So, so yeah, it, it does feel like prohibition's kind of over here because of that, you know. But the the point is, now we are next door to Pennsylvania. I work regionally. I work in Delaware, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and go down to D.C. and lobby Congress. And I work in Maryland every once in a while too. So I realize that we are in a, and we are an important region. Pennsylvania is the keystone state for. It's called that. Because of that, it, it is the keystone of this region. Now it's the keystone and an island of prohibition, surrounded by everything. You're talking about being surrounded by the regions. Mexico legalized this year, Andy. New Mexico and old Mexico legalized <laughs> marijuana, and Pennsylvania is still arresting 55 people every day. What? Right. Right. What? So, like, you know, this gets to the question, why? You know, and and we have... Uh, we, you know, there was an announcement a little while back about a bipartisan bill with Dan Laughlin. He's a state senator from Erie, Pennsylvania. He's uh, two-term, you know, he's new guys that has been around too long. Um, and Senator Sharif Street is his uh, bipartisan co-sponsor from Philadelphia. And the two of them have an interesting concept, but it won't move unless the Pennsylvania GOP, which controls both houses, actually posts it. Carrie Benninghoff, who is the, you know, basically the Dude who says what moves and what doesn't, he's been 1937 reefer madness on this subject, like left and right. And he's he's really dug his heels in. He said, full stop, we're not legalizing marijuana in Pennsylvania. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, the dynamic there is is against, you know, Governor Wolf and of course the very popular Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, uh, making national news regularly talking about how they want to legalize. So I guess uh, you know, from outsider and insider perspective, uh, the issue is clear. Um, polling shows that plenty of voters want it. 
Um, the rest of the states around us are legalizing. Um, the GOP is in control of it, and they don't want to see Governor Wolf sign a bill. <laughs> they feel like they don't want to give a win off to the other side. So, you know, 55 people are being arrested every day. Uh, and let's make this clear, because now it's even clearer than ever. Like everybody who gets arrested for marijuana in this country from 1937 to now was a, is a political prisoner, is getting arrested for politics, not because of our personal politics, but because of the politics of, of people like Kerry Benninghoff. You know, well, we are being, you know, it's politics at gunpoint, Andy. That's the scary part. Prohibition is politics at gunpoint. That's what we as consumers face. So, you know, Benninghoff's got to realize that those guns aren't just leveled at uh, black consumers in Allentown. Um, you know, prohibition comes down on Republicans and Democrats alike. And I hope that the Pennsylvania GOP starts to realize that a lot of their own voters are getting caught with marijuana every day. And it, it's, it's, it's something that is affecting their own base. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, too, so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, some of our friends in the cannabis reform circles were really hyped about having a Republican primary sponsor, which is a mark of progress. It's always been carried by the Democrats in the Pennsylvania General Assembly, so that's something. But I didn't want to be like the old head lobbyist who's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old grizzled cynic who's like, yeah, so what? You know, this uh, this happens all the time. Like, I can think of issues where we got a Republican support and then the issues went nowhere. Uh, so well, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> no, but, I mean, but uh, okay. at the same time, like, what's your take? I mean, is this progress or is this, is it really not something worth getting too hyped about? I mean, clearly, there is not going to be a legalization bill that moves in Pennsylvania without the GOP on board. They control both houses. Um, let's analyze the issue. Let's have fun playing armchair politics for a minute, Andy. Um, Dan Laughlin, um, having a bipartisan bill on the surface is good. Um, on, and on the surface, I have to tell you that although Kerry Benninghoff has come out against the bill, the, the party backs Dan Laughlin. He's a party guy. If you look at his top 10 donators... They are the top people in the Republican Party of Pennsylvania. Kim Ward, um, uh, you know, is one of them. Uh, David Argall is one of the top uh, contributors. And this bill is in front of David Argall's state senator, David Argall's committee, who is one of Dan Laughlin's top contributors. So I assume it's going to do well in his committee. And yeah, there's a lot of back scratching that goes on there. Senators donate to each other, especially if one's like like Erie is a competitive district, whereas Argall is probably not as no, but I think it, that's that's my point, though, about Dan Laughlin, is that he's the party guy on this. He is the GOP's guy on this. He would not be introducing this bill without the party pushing him forward to do it. Um, and you're right. They do a lot of back scratching, especially with campaign donating. But the bigger guys like Argall don't have his fellow legislators in his top 10 list. Hmm. Dan Laughlin is only fellow legislators in his top 10 list at Ballotpedia, which means like he's just a, you know, he's kind of a party spokesperson, really. And he's doing their bidding. Sure. So what I'm saying is, is that the GOP actually likes Dan Laughlin's bill. Now, this is the same thing. Again, let's play armchair here, Andy. In 2016, the Pennsylvania General uh, Assembly passed medical marijuana, a longtime Democratic issue that they longtime argued, argued against. But suddenly in 2015, they grabbed hold of a bill, rewrote it, ran it through committees, and were happy to have it. What is Pennsylvania today? The most corporate-friendly medical marijuana program in the country. $440 an ounce to patients. 
The permits were sold for $1.2 billion in the first two years, but only 200 million of marijuana was sold to patients in the same amount of time. These people are running McMarijuana. You know, they, they have the Ray Kroc idea. It's, it's really just a real estate game. The hamburgers are just the side game. So, um, you know, and that's the truth. Um, but that is because the Republicans passed a bill that made that all happen. They laid out the welcome mat to multi-state corporate operators with the structure of the 2016 Act. And the Democrats were happy to sign it for progress, but the structure itself was created by Republicans. And their friends own these big dispensaries. Acreage Holdings, John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, Mr. Republican. Yeah. Now, if you really look at the ownership interest to a lot of the medical marijuana facilities and the co-interests that are involved, it's a lot of the friends of the GOP legislators. So this happened in New Jersey too, Andy. I mean, Chris Christie wrote the New Jersey bill and then all of his friends got the permits. So this idea that the GOP is against marijuana, ha ha, ha ha ha. Their friends are all making millions in profits on it every year. And guess what? They're spending those millions on donations and lobbying. So, you know, I, I, my take is that the GOP, you know, they're watching New York, New Jersey, legalize marijuana. They want to get it on the action too. They want to control it 100%. Right now they can. And they intend to do the same dang thing that they did in 2016 with medical marijuana, which is on the surface, oppose it behind the scenes, write a bill that puts their friends in charge of the business. Yeah. I want to go back to the decrim ordinances too, um, because, you know, this ties into the impact of police and policing and how the police almost operate without accountability by the elected class. So you have elected officials in these boroughs and cities, Allentown, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, State College, implementing decrim ordinances. But because of the nature of the structure, it's a local ordinance that you could use as an alternative to arresting someone under state law. The cops and people above them are just choosing to ignore it, correct? Yeah. And again, that shows the politics of it, because in Philadelphia and a couple of other towns, you know, Harrisburg did a, a, a fair stab at implementing. Their arrests went down about 50, 60 percent. But in Pittsburgh, after decriminalization, marijuana arrests only went down 30 percent, whereas in Philadelphia, within six months, they went down 80 percent. So the impact is really, and in Allentown, as you noted, they, they, were, they refused to implement it at all because the district attorney in Lehigh County, Jim Martin, uh, appointed himself as the state Supreme Court and um, uh, declared it all unconstitutional, which is uh, a false uh, interpretation, yeah. to say the least. You know, Andy, I think that we worked on municipal decriminalization in Philly and other cities. And again, it's been it's been I, I don't want this overlooked. Philadelphia stopped 5000 arrests a year in 2014. If we didn't have done that, then it'd be 10,000 arrests a year by now. No joke. And those arrests don't even happen. So all those racially biased outcomes down the road don't happen either. Um, that's been a huge change in Philly. It's been a real breath of fresh air for the city. We wanted that for other cities. We faced politics you know, coming back. So we have to take the game up higher. The state needs to decriminalize marijuana. You know, We need to have this conversation about a retail cannabis structure for Pennsylvania. But you know, this is the I, I have to I've been talking with Pennsylvania legislators a lot about this. The Laughlin Street bill is what I call a string theory bill it tries to do everything at once. <laughs> We're going to go from 
full 100 years of prohibition and we're going to do massive social justice, criminal justice reforms where we end arrest, expunge records, clear everybody's stuff. Oh, and then we're going to create an industry that's also going to be economically diverse and include small business and, and dovetail in this existing corporate operators who have medical permits right now. Awesome, right? <laughs> impossible. Um, you know, New Jersey found that um, literally impossible. So they had to do a ballot initiative followed by three bills. And um, honestly, if you really want to take Pennsylvania from full prohibition to ending it and to justice, you have to start with stopping arrests. It, it is that simple. Justice for marijuana doesn't begin until police stop arresting consumers. It's that simple. Um, and Virginia actually uh, is very interesting. They had passed a bill and they said that they were going to implement it in three years. And Governor Northam, just this week, the legislature went back and they said, you know what? We're changing it. Marijuana is legal on July 1st. We won't have it available for retail, but you won't get arrested for it anymore starting July 1st. Yeah. Now you have Virginia. So you got Virginia, New York, New Jersey have completely stopped marijuana arrests. Andy, by the end of next year, Pennsylvania might be the state in the country with the most marijuana arrests. Not kidding around. Okay, it will beat Texas. It will beat Louisiana because they're actually reforming down there. It'll beat yeah. Florida where the counties have decriminalized like Monroe and Broward. So, you know, the question for us right now in Pennsylvania is what do we do immediately to stop marijuana arrests? How do we address this issue? And, you know, we've worked in towns and we've gotten politics back and more political prisoners in Allentown. Not cool. So now state legislators have to step in. And if they won't act in Harrisburg, my argument now is that uh, the attorney general, Josh Shapiro, the governor, need to take some sort of emergency action. This is a, not only a public health crisis, but it is a, a justice crisis. And if we do nothing and wait, that doesn't serve anybody right now. Well, and this is why I've said true decriminalization, and I probably got this from you actually <laughs> true decriminalization is wiping the crime off the books because merely taking it down to a summary that's fine except i mean it's, it's it's better than what we have now but you still give cops pretext to stop people and arrest them if it's a summary offense a summary offense is still a criminal offense in pennsylvania sure. and so merely lowering the grading it does eliminate some of the potential penalties, but you still give cops a reason to arrest people and you'll still likely have 20,000 people a year being arrested. Well, I mean, in Philly, we went, what we have in Philly, you're right. Some of the towns that, it, it, some of the city councils eventually just downgraded to a summary, but in Philadelphia, we made it a civil penalty. So right. it really is not a crime. Right. It's not on your record. The worst thing that can happen if you don't pay your $25 ticket in Philadelphia for marijuana is a collections company will start annoying you in two years. So right. that is, that's not a crime. That's civil ticket. That's okay. Um, I'm okay with coming down that far, but you're right. I think a summary, it's still a crime. It's not decriminalization. It doesn't really count because uh, you do give uh, police all that context. Again, I want people to be clear. Unfortunately, until you have fully legal marijuana that's purchased in a shop that everybody agrees is legal, that cops can't take away from you, even in a decrim moment, you might not get arrested, but you're going to lose your stash, which sucks. So, 
um, uh, you know, I've heard other, I've had activists tell me, and they're like, you know, why are working on decrim, Chris? It's like a free weed for cops program. And I'm like, oh man, <laughs> hope you're not right about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this question might be controversial. If we have to edit it out, we can, but do you think that cannabis reform and ending prohibition is enough of a priority among criminal justice reformers in Pennsylvania? No. Um, I think that it's it's barely paid attention to. Um, honestly, I, I think that it's one of those uh, bandwagon issues. Um, criminal justice reformers in Pennsylvania are happy to talk about marijuana legalization if they think that people will donate to their group because of it. Um, but actually putting any lobbying effort in or dovetailing real prohibition reforms into their other bigger picture stuff, I don't, I don't even see it happening. It's not even on anybody's radar. Um, and the idea, again, back to the idea with the drug treatment thing, you know, even even uh, harm reduction activists don't really look at marijuana. They, they feel like they need to be arm's length with the whole cannabis discussion because it might taint their harm reduction strategy in some way. Meanwhile, you know, they're facing the same thing against the federal government that medical marijuana dispensaries did to put in um, a fair needle exchange and a, a safe space for uh, opiates in Philadelphia. I mean, it's hilarious. Yeah. So, no, um, people aren't paying enough attention to it unless they think that they can make a little money off of it. Um, they're letting consumers and patients do most of the advocacy work and pushing for legal reform. At the last minute, um, you know, if it looks like it serves their issue, they're happy to, to um, you know, stand out, sign a bill, talk to the press. So a related question, how do you think the movement in Pennsylvania needs to change? And I'm asking this question because there's there's majority support according to polling for legalization it's not overwhelming but it's it's majority the movement doesn't seem to be growing from my perspective maybe i'm wrong about that but do you think that there is some uh, changes or new ways of organizing or different ways of organizing that need to happen in the cannabis reform movement in Pennsylvania? Yeah, um, I, and I don't think it's just in Pennsylvania. I think it's everywhere. Um, the movement has, you know, I've been around this for 25 years. And I think that naturally, there's a lot of people who get involved with reform who want to get in, into business later. You know, they're looking to legalize marijuana so that they can have a marijuana-related business. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I, I think now that we've all advocated for retail cannabis and it's here, there is becoming a split between industry advocacy and consumer advocacy. And that's, you know, again, um, I, I am getting a little concerned in how marijuana is regulated. You know, they're seating the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission. None of the members are outwardly public about being a consumer. So like, would you get on a train that was regulated by people who never rode trains? You know, <laughs> would you fly on an airplane if nobody who regulated airplanes flew on airplanes? Um, if nobody on the Cannabis Regulatory Commission smokes marijuana or is a registered patient or caregiver and is willing to be public about that, um, it feels like we're not represented by regulators or even in that process. So again, the cannabis industry, including, and I include the small business, okay, look, the small, I'm a consumer. So whether you're a giant corporation selling medical cannabis for $440 an ounce, 
or you're a local traditional market operator trying to sell me a $200 ounce, everybody's just looking for my money. You know, so you've got to give me a quality product at a good price. And that's what consumer advocacy is about, especially with airlines and rail. So I think that the movement here is, is that there is an evolving industry that has its own lobby, that has its own interest, and there are regulators. (laughs) And um, to me, post-prohibition, the new stakeholders are regulators, the industry, and consumers. Who's left? Um, those are the new stakeholders post-prohibition. Right. So now the split, when you say what's the split in activism, the split in activism is going to be, you know, who's going to be the industry and who's going to be the consumer advocates. And they're not always going to be aligned. Um, and we're seeing that now. Um, in Delaware, we're seeing the permit holders testify against the full legalization bill. Bad look. Um, you know, patients are now boycotting dispensaries. So even if these guys win a license later, how are they going to get any customers? You know, and their claim was that they'd be put out of business. Um, you know, Columbia Care, Fresh Delaware, these are multi-state operators. Um, they claimed that by opening up adult use and if they didn't get a priority license, it would shut them down. And which is hyperbolic at best. I mean, it's 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 literally false at, at worst. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Columbia Care posted a two hundred million dollar quarterly earnings profit. They're not going out of they They don't seem to be having a fire sale right now. Um, all their lawyers and lobbyists seem to be well paid um, and their marijuana costs four hundred and forty dollars an ounce. But somehow a little bit of competition is going to put them out of business. I don't think so. They weren't the only ones. I don't want to focus on them Four of the six dispensaries testified against it. But, you know, this is what they won in New York and New Jersey. They steamrolled through the legislators there. They said, well, you, you can't do this bill unless we get a first permit. Guess what? They got it. Um, so that's, that's what's happening, Andy. Um, we need, is it growing? I think it is. I think that more people are legal patients. The consumer advocacy side is bound to really grow. Honest reviews of products, honest reviews of companies, honest advocacy towards better pricing price transparency, maybe even cost controls. Um, That all needs to, you know, these are small cartels that set the prices on their own. I mean, the state should be at the table. Yeah. So we don't want to have this turn out like tuna fish and maple syrup. (laughs) Well, it's interesting the direction you took that because I was thinking like, is the movement as it currently exists, are are the activists who are active today enough to push this issue over the top? Because it takes more than just uh, showing a poll that shows majority support. Elect- elected officials have to feel like this will impact them at the polls. And they start to feel that way when people make this a priority issue and there are active voices pushing for it. And I guess that, that was kind of where, where, where my thinking was like, and I don't know what the, I don't know if I have a good answer. Like if you were asking me this question, I don't know how I would answer it because Maybe, maybe the current movement is enough, but I don't know. I'm not sure if it is. Oh, but there's also the old saying in activism that, uh, and lobbying that you feel like you're losing right up until the minute you win. So. <laughs> well, I, I feel like we're definitely winning some things. Again, Andy, um, you know, I think that we, n- neither of us expect anything perfect to happen in politics, but I, I was not expecting to see in the first six months of 2021, a full stop to arrests in New Jersey and New York. Um, that's, it's, 
so massive to wrap your head around. Most people have, even I haven't yet. So yeah. I feel like we're not losing. <laughs> right. I feel like we're not losing. Well, you forget, um, I live in Pennsylvania. So of course I feel like I'm yeah. losing. You live in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's the thing. I don't feel like we're losing in Pennsylvania either. Um, you know, in fact, I've considered moving across the river uh, to work on this issue right now in 2021 and 2022, because, you know, it's so important that Pennsylvania stop arrests and re realize some sort of retail cannabis structure. We need home grow. We need our farms working on it. You know, I know lots of people in Philadelphia that grow a little bit of marijuana. That needs to be legal in the urban environment, for God's sakes. And it's mm -hmm. easy today. So, you know, when you talk about where advocacy is going, you know, the same companies that are that are fighting for priority permits will fight you on home grow, too. So there's a lot to be done to make sure that we as consumers and patients protect our rights, preserve those rights and, you know, open it up even further. You know, just saying you're going to stop arresting us. You know, it's really nice, but we want a bit more than that. <laughs> you know? yeah. We want an end to stigma an end to discrimination, because even though we're not being arrested, you could kick us out of our college dorm. We could get kicked out by our landlord. Our job can drug test us until they fire us. So come on. Um, there's a lot of discrimination that needs to be met with here. But, you know, I, I think that as far as putting that over the top, we're growing that lobby right now. You know, again, too many people, I think, are focused on the industry. You know, people get involved with marijuana reform. They talk about an inclusive industry. And that's the direction. They're here to be in business. And I respect that. But that is not that is really not the core of this movement in my mind. The core of this movement in my mind are the consumers themselves. That's what every business wants as their customer. That's where all the tax revenue is counted, comes out of our pocket. So I think that that, that, that end of things, I think, is going to increase. I'm working on it. It needs to be more diverse, too, believe me. Um, you know, but I think that in the environment of prohibition and the kind of biases we've talked about, it's been difficult for communities to organize around this topic. So... You know, I hope that with, um, you know, with some of this legal change, it will inspire communities to get more organized, for sure, every community. You mentioned you've been doing this 25 years. How did you end up as an activist? I know you're an old radio guy like me. Uh, well, you know, I've always been an activist and um, like a little bit here and there. But, you know, I was in radio and um, I started reading. I, you know, Andy, we're doing a podcast and I was like one of the OG podcasters back in the day. <laughs> um you know, in 2005, uh, Apple iTunes put podcasts into the iTunes music store. There was a podcast section for the first time. Before that, it was just uh, music that you could pay for a download. And of course, back in 2005, podcasts went to like iPods and right. computers. That's it. They didn't go to your phone. You know, nobody, that was the only way to get it. And you, I remember like leaving my iPod in its dock on my 56K computer so that it could sit there and download stuff while I was doing other stuff. You know, right. the computer was working on the downloads and I'd come back and be like, all right, it's all here. So, but um, I used to have to write the RSS feed. So anyway, National Normal uh, has a weekly press release which comes out every week. And it really is a great rundown of, of policy reform. So on my regular public radio show, I started reading the press release as a segment of the show. And um, it was public radio um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So like our first fundraiser on the station, we did like $10,000 in donations in a week. And 3,000 came in during my show, like 2,000 of it right around that little section. Wow. So it made me realize that there was a real demand that was popular. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, no kidding. Uh, um, National Normal hired me to record that 
were their first podcast. I recorded the press release as a newscast. Mm-hmm. It's 10 minutes long, just my voice, reading it off the page professionally. We put it up on iTunes. We're getting like 100,000 downloads a week in like 2005. I mean, it was, it was massive. Wow. At the time, we were beating the White House and uh, then Senator Clinton, uh, the U.S. Parks and Recreation Service. You know, all, we're beating all the government organizations on iTunes. We're the most popular government organizations podcast. At that time, uh, Normal asked me to uh, do a daily podcast, which we started five days a week, Normal's Daily Audio Stash. Wow, and I did okay. it for two years, wow. like, you know, every day, um, which was like going to the University of Marijuana. And um, I, I talked to like every chapter leader in the country about what they were doing. And then I talked to scientists and I was interviewing Barney Frank and Ron Paul and Tommy Chong and all these celebrities and such. And at the end of it, I was I was in New Mexico and then I moved back to New Jersey to be with my family. And I looked at the reform state around here. There wasn't a normal chapter in Philadelphia at the time. And I looked around. And I was like, man, like. I got to take what I learned and see if I could do something with it. Um, all these people are doing great work. New Jersey and Philadelphia are like left out. Um, so I, I worked on it. Um, there was a small normal chapter in Philly at the time, and I got involved with them. There was a small one in New Jersey. I ended up becoming the executive director of both chapters concurrently, Philly and New Jersey, for a while. I was on the board of directors of the Coalition for Medical Marijuana. And I took all that experience of doing the podcast and um, of all the, all the experience of people talking about lobbying politicians and doing press and media relations. And it worked. Um, you know, uh, and uh, the other thing I took away from it is that I try and mentor chapter leaders. You know, as a regional organizer now, I work on just getting anybody and everybody to start up a normal chapter in wherever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that normal has been around a long time. It's got a good model. There aren't many groups out there in the country like it anymore. It's kind of like the Red Cross of cannabis, you know? And, um, you know, ACLU is a good example. I think Normal and ACLU are very interestingly similar. You know, I would love to see ACLU as the structure I hope Normal will have one day, is that each state will have a, a paid staff and a director and an office. And, and that, that, that state staff directs all the volunteer groups. That's the future, I hope, for National yeah. Um, is exactly what ACLU does. But, um, you know, ACLU has been part and parcel in marijuana reform, too. I mean, ACLU of Washington's director, uh, Allison Holcomb, helped pass that bill out there, I-502. Um, and ACLU chapters have been uh, in New Jersey was uh, very instrumental in, in passing a bill over here. So, you know, it's been a part of ACLU's work. Like every, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that's always trying to spin the wheel on the flashlight and make the light brighter, you know. So I wish ACLU, every ACLU chapter would do more. But honestly, ACLU has been the, one of the best partners in reform uh, of any group out there. Uh, Normal's really the only group that's been out there doing this, um, and it is tough sometimes. The other groups, uh, you know, not to mention their names, are very industry heavy. Their lobbying is much more for the industry than for consumers. Um, I work at, you know, I volunteer and work at Normal over the years because we are the consumer lobby. And that's what I think is important. All right, Chris. Well, it's always great to catch up with you. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. This, this was very informative. And, um, you know, we'll just keep on keeping on. Freedom is green, right? Andy, thank you so much. Have a wonderful 420 over there. And I cannot wait to invite you over here to New Jersey to smoke some legal marijuana. Anytime, man. <laughs> hey, we got to take that fishing trip. And uh... <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Cannabis fishing. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, man. Have a great day.
That's Chris Goldstein, regional organizer for Normal. You can find Chris on Twitter with the handle Freedom is Green. We've also provided a link to his writing for Normal in the show notes. Speaking Freely has gone to video. You can find select episodes of the podcast, including this one, on our YouTube channel. Our YouTube handle is ACLUPA. Be sure to subscribe to the channel for all of our video content. And that brings episode 58 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, your host, writer, and director of the show. Until next time, be healthy and be free. Be free.